Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Opera After Dark. What makes it very special? The one, the only, Mr. Kyle Homewood will be leading today's discussion. Kyle has all the information, all the facts. Naomi and I will remain silent (laughs) throughout this entire thing, starting now. That would be the worst podcast episode ever go ahead kyle this is your moment (laughs) but yes this for the first time we're in the middle of season four of opera after dark and for the first time i'm bringing the contents to this discussion longtime listeners will be scared perhaps a little bit nervous thrilled there was that one time when we i think we did La Lazire de More, and Kyle kept correcting me on the plot, oh, so was, he just took Tosca. over. It was Tosca. It was Tosca. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> so, so this might forget. be like he did, he took like half of the lead in that <laughs> one. <laughs> but before we get started, uh, Naomi, I believe you have some fan mail that you would like to address. Yes. Oh. So we do get fan mail here at Opera After Dark, and mm. there are a few that I just wanted to kind of give a shout out to uh, two of our most recent uh, people who have written to us. One, uh, Mark Homerding. I think that's how you pronounce your last name. I am sorry if I pronounced it incorrectly. She's sorry. I'm sorry. But Mark wrote us a really wonderful message all about Philip Glass and how he got into Philip Glass and and how he considers himself a glasshead, and which we nice. said, if anyone considers himself a glasshead, please write. So okay. thank you, Mark, for writing and telling us all about how you first got into Philip Glass and got hooked on his music. And Mark is a photographer, and listening to Glass is partially an inspirational thing for inspiring creativity in his photography which is amazing oh, cool. so thank you for writing to us and telling us all about that glass is one of his favorite composers and another shout out i wanted to give is to Giancarlo lisi who is all the way in auckland new zealand right now and Giancarlo and i went to conservatory together in canada and yeah and he wrote to me a little while ago on facebook saying i don't know if you remember me but i listened to opera after dark and i just wanted to say hi and tell you that i love what you guys are doing and so i have to go on record saying of course i remember you Giancarlo." we sang in a chamber choir together and John Carlo is doing some pretty exciting things teaching music in New Zealand. So that's pretty exciting. And a shout out to everyone who listens to us in Auckland. I did look at our stats for Opera After Dark the other day, and there are a lot of people who listen in Auckland. So that's thank so you, John Carlo, for spreading the, the word about Opera After Dark on literally the other side of the world. I would like to go to New Zealand. Ooh, I would like to go to New Zealand too. John Carlo. Please help us. Help us go to New Zealand. <laughs> I, I do think that it's a little bit funny that of all the names in the world. Right. His name is Giancarlo. Are you going to make a joke about everybody I know being Italian? Italian Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> Just everybody from your childhood. <laughs> it's it's like true. Every, you'd hear Naomi talking about being at a, a family wedding with Luigi and Mario and right. Giancarlo. Giancarlo. For the record, Giancarlo and I are not 
blood related, but we went to school together. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who can say? I mean, that is true. It, it was Who your childhood. Say? Who knows so, for sure? Yeah. Maybe, Giancarlo, maybe you and I share some kind of distant relative. You never know. From the same village. From the same village in Italy. In Giancarlo, Italy. where's your family from in Italy way back? Let us know. Mine's from La Marche. Let me know where yours is from. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for writing. Thanks to everybody who writes us. And I also, while we're giving thanks, I would love to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. It really means a lot to us uh, to have your support. And uh, we really appreciate it. It helps make the podcast possible. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, definitely. Thank you. But enough of that. And now to jump in. Kyle. (laughs) Yes. Naomi and I will remain quiet as women were meant to do. Oh, gosh. Well... Let's see where to begin. It it is funny that this should be the subject matter that that I jump in on, uh, because today we're going to talk a lot about tenors, and it's almost like I want to say insert joke here, like we'll just get all the tenor jokes out right at, right off the start. But I do love me some tenors. Probably, I mean, I feel like most people do, unless you have some strange vendetta against tenors. Okay, you can't actually be silent the whole time. <laughs> do you have do you have preconceived notions about tenors? Do you have your own thoughts about tenors? Well, I mean, there are these stereotypes. I mean, I love me a good tenor. <laughs> hmm? right. I love me a good tenor, but the kind of stupid. Yeah, oh, is sure, that a stereotype? Sure. Yeah. Oh, oh, definitely. Definitely. It's like oh, how okay. many tenors does it take to screw in a light bulb or something? Okay. How many? Oh, I don't know. I only know. I, I'm a tenor, so. I only I know, know the mezzo one. How many mezzos does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many? One. And then a soprano to stand there and tell her how it's too high for her. Oh, that's good. What's the tenor one? I don't know. I I don't actually know. Oh, oh, wait. I think I I think I know. What is it? Um, it only takes one, and they don't have to do anything. They just hold it, and the whole world revolves around them. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Which can also be applied to sopranos. Okay. Yeah, this is true. Yes. Well, there's a reason that people like tenors. Um, actually, there's uh, many reasons why people like tenors. They have great music composed for them. But one thing that people like in particular about tenors is the full-chested high C that has become popular in tenor repertoire. And mm. uh, not too long ago, I was preparing a talk all about tenors, and I came across some interesting factoids about the development of the high C, and I thought, we need to talk about this. Great. Go for it. Well, to give some context, I do want to just give some background. So the the original rock stars of the opera world, we know, and listeners of this podcast will know, were the castrati, or singular, castrato. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already have actually had two episodes on castrati, because there's so many fun facts about them. <laughs> Um, as you can imagine from the name, these are singers who had their testicles removed before they hit puberty, so they were able to maintain the boy soprano sound even as they grew, grew into full-grown men. 
and because of the change of their hormone structure, they were full-grown men with incredible lung capacity and really long limbs, and people loved them. And so a lot of music was composed uh, for castrati in leading roles, like leading men, if you will. But in the late 1700s, this fell out of style. People were like, we don't want to have young boys be castrated anymore. Um, so the castrati fell out of out of prominence. And I like to think it's partly due to this that tenors then came into prominence. Do you guys have anything to add at this point? I do. <laughs> please, please. So, yeah, there's there's this really great book by a scholar named John Potter called The History of Singing. And he also wrote an article that he published like before he wrote the book. And the article is called The Tenor, the Tenor Castrato Connection. And Ooh. he did a ton of research into the kind of lineage of teaching of how people taught singing, operatic singing in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And the castrati, once they were kind of too old to continue their rock star ways on the stage a mm -hmm. lot of them would kind of retire from performing and they would become teachers and so there was this lineage of castrato one castrato teaching another castrato how to sing right and so you kind of create this lineage of teaching and then there's a time period where you can see if you kind of trace out the lineage that castrati were teaching tenors and they taught tenors how to sing according to how they understood singing, which was a lot of head voice, right? Mm -hmm. And so at the time, there's a lot of historical evidence that shows that tenors would sing in a chested voice up to a certain part of their range, kind of ascending up in range. And then it was very common that they would flip into head voice and sing their highest part of their range in head voice similar to what you would hear with a castrato. And mm -hmm. part of that is because of this method of teaching and the style that was popular with castrados. And then over time, you start to see, instead of the castrati teaching tenors, you see tenors teaching tenors. And that kind of lines up with the historical timeline of when um, castrati fall out of fashion and kind of public taste for them declines. And when there's a rise in popularity of the, the tenor as the kind of leading romantic hero. And... The particular thing that I think Kyle's going to talk about, this chested high C, is a big part of that. But there's actually a date of around 1830, 1832, where you see like a huge sharp decline in how many castrati were singing and roles being created for castrati in this like massive spurt in tenor roles being the romantic leads. And so there is this overlap. Hmm. Kyle suspected that you know, the the fall of the castrati in popularity contributed to the rise of the tenor. And they're like much more intricately linked than we might initially think. Um, yeah, that's incredible. So, so it's hugely important. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And particularly interesting is the mention of the dates that you mentioned. Mm. Uh, because as composers were composing more and more for tenors in, in leading roles, this is like the early bel canto period uh, where it was necessary for voices to be pretty agile. Um, mm. and, and a lot of them are, are lighter voices, but that have a lot of movement in the vocal line. So um, that's reflected in the, the compositional style and then in the performance style of the time. 
But around the time that you mentioned, like 1830, uh, there was a tenor named Gilbert Dupre, or Gilbert Dupre, depending on how French you want to get. And he self-evaluated and thought, I don't have the vocal agility uh, that other singers have to to really highlight uh, these works that are being created right now. So instead, I'm going to use my really strong chested upper register uh, to impress audiences. Mm. And it was in 1831 that he first performed a full chested high C uh, in a performance of Guillaume Tell in Luca. And people enjoyed it. People went nuts for it. People loved it. And when we say the chested tenor high C, the high C is basically... Like the the one of the highest notes that tenors can actually hit, mm-hmm. right? And if we're playing it on the piano, do we say that's middle C or the C above middle C? The C, above, C above middle, middle C. C above middle yeah. C. Yeah. Naomi, you touched on the head voice before, which is mm-hmm. also referred to as falsetto. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- there are variances, and people mix and all kinds of things. But um, if you're not familiar with this head voice or, or falsetto, I I tell people that it's you, you can think of Frankie Valley from Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. does a lot of singing in his falsetto. That it's almost like it's this lighter kind of off the voice style of singing, whereas the the full chested is you're taking your full heavy, um, for lack of a better term, operatic production and bringing it to the upper register full breath support on the voice yeah and it technically has to do with what parts of your vocal cords are vibrating um Mm -hmm. because basically if you're always singing with the entire vocal cord vibrating that's like your full supported yeah chested sound and if you flip into head voice or falsetto, it's actually, it's like your vocal cords can't vibrate the way that you want them to with the whole cord vibrating. So to get a higher pitch, it's actually the outer membrane of the vocal cord that's vibrating. So as you can think of it as only part of your vocal cords or like a particular, I think it's a ligament, although I'm not 100% sure, but it's like some kind of outer membrane in the vocal cord that vibrates and that's what creates falsetto. And so there is actually like a physical difference in what is vibrating in your body when you flip into falsetto. And it's not really something that you can kind of consciously necessarily feel. You're not like, ooh, I feel my outer membranes vibrating. I must be in falsetto, (laughs) right? It's more that you just hear a difference in what's created. And there's a difference in the strength that you can create in the sound. Um, But yes. There's actually, there are videos that people have done where they've like scoped the throat Mm. of opera singers. And when they're singing in these different styles, you see what the vocal folds are doing in these different style of singing. So you can actually see the difference in the vocal uh, vocal cords mm-hmm. when somebody's singing full voice versus in falsetto. It's a little bit gross, but kind of cool. That's okay. It sounds like uncomfortable for the person singing, but fascinating to understand like how the singing voice works in these different ranges. Yeah. So the first full chested high C in a public operatic performance was... Gilbert Dupre, 
and this was in Guillaume Tell, an opera by Rossini. Would you guys guess uh, or, or wager to guess what Rossini thought about it? He hated it. Hated it. <laughs> I believe he said it sounded like a capon squawking, which is a kind of bird or duck. <laughs> yeah, I read. I read that he thought it, it sounded grotesque, like not not pretty singing to him. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is that audiences loved it, and what what also is very interesting to me as I was doing research about tenor repertoire from this period of time, is that very quickly. Um, you start to see composers adapting to this style of singing, and they start to compose with these types of like vocal fireworks in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and already, so we had 1831 was the first uh, tenor uh, full voice high C, and then by 1840, we have what is, in my opinion, one of the best examples of repeated high Cs, and that's in the the aria a mes amis from La Fille de Regiment, the daughter of the regiment, where you have like eight high C's, eight or nine high C's in succession. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's so eight the, written in the score and tenors usually interpolate the ninth, the final right, one. Yeah. Right. And then if you're Juan Diego Flores, <laughs> then you do an encore and so you're doing 16 or, or 18. Or uh, Javier Camarena, he also sang the true. encore. Should yeah. we should we listen to one of them doing a little bit of Amezami? Yes. Yeah, let's do I, I just really love Juan Diego Flores, so sure. let's get a little bit of that. There's also a clip of Luciano Pavarotti singing a section from I Puritani where mm. you can actually hear the moment where he moves between chest and head mm-hmm. voice or falsetto. Ooh, nice. And it's something that really is kind of extremely rare for Pavarotti because when we think of Pavarotti, you think of that like incredibly consistent forceful sound that he had where it seemed like he just never missed a high C or a high note like that chested tenor sound was his calling card and he was amazing at it but in this recording of Iporatani he sings 
like brings the chest voice all the way up. And then I think he actually interpolates a note higher than the high C and he flips into falsetto just for that moment and then immediately goes back into head voice. And it seems very deliberate, like it wasn't a mistake, but it was a way of reaching an even higher note Mm -hmm. on stage. And Mm -hmm. the difference in timbre and in sound between the chested versus the head voice is so obvious that I always find it helpful when I'm teaching about the tenor and like the rise of the tenor, the fall of the castrati. That's the clip I use to demonstrate like the difference between the two. So we'll play play a little clip of it now so you can hear it. So, as I said earlier, audiences really loved this sound pretty much from the get-go, and composers started to compose for it, uh, and also singers of the time, uh, aside from Gilbert Dupre, tried to emulate this sound, tried to adapt to this new developed taste in audiences. Um, Some of them were successful, some of them couldn't manage it, and it sounds like a lot of them damage their voices trying to to develop this technique and to sing it regularly it's still something that's extremely challenging for singers and it's incredibly important to develop the technique in a gradual in a healthy way or you mm-hmm. can really do some serious vocal damage and actually there was a tenor uh, at the time uh, that this became popular named uh, Adolf Nuri and he actually, he tried to develop this new sound, severely damaged his voice. It does sound like he probably, if he were living now, would have been diagnosed with some mental health um, mm. issues. But he ultimately committed suicide because he wasn't happy with the, the sound of his, his voice and not being able mm. to adapt to this new sound. So it was... Even in the in the world of tenors, even at that time, it was a pretty quick game changer uh, and a dramatic change in taste. I would I would hazard to say that I think there's few other things in the history or few other moments in the history of opera 
that had such a huge impact on how we sing opera and how mm-hmm. audiences want to hear opera than this moment in the history of singing. Like, it is such a sharp turn in audience taste and aesthetics and also like how the voice is produced and how people are teaching singing that and and like has had such a permanent mark on the opera like the school the the whole i'm not being very articulate <laughs> you're everyone's i'm doing with you yeah great it it had such a permanent mark on how people sing opera mm-hmm. even today like you never ever hear a tenor sing roles that were written before this time period you don't really hear them sing it in a head voice like think of don ottavio in don giovanni like that part was not written for a chested tenor sound but you almost never hear a tenor sing that in a kind of like head voice tone never because audiences would be like is he okay (laughs) (laughs) right i feel like the only time you sort of hear that is in like really authentic performances of early music Mm mm-hmm Right. So I think that's really interesting. I I think that there are a lot of things that change gradually over the course of history and over an industry like opera where singing technique kind of slowly changes over time. The bel canto school of singing like developed over time. Singing itself developed quite a bit across the board between 1800 and 1900, but nothing had quite as huge of an impact as the chested tenor sound. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, of course, composers continued to run with it. And because of that, then we ended up with like the Wagnerian tenor sound that people are familiar with, or the, the Heldon tenor, as, as mm-hmm. it's referred to, which when you listen to it on its own, especially when you compare it to a bel canto tenor, it, it has many, it sounds a lot like a baritone almost. Mm-hmm. It's a much darker quality, much fuller quality. So it's interesting, except to Elspeth. Uh, what? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think it's also interesting to think that given the size of Wagner's orchestra, I don't think Wagner, like the experience of how we experience Wagner now, I don't think it would have been possible without the rise of the tenor, oh, yeah. the chested mm-hmm. tenor. Like, And I think a lot of singing technique in the late Romantic era, even though like sopranos don't experience, females don't experience singing the same way that that men do because the thickness of the vocal cords are different. And so we don't experience like the chested versus head voice in exactly the same way. But I think the impact that the chested tenor had on kind of how you produce power in the voice also kind of trickled to all voice types. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that you could have been able to be heard over a Wagner orchestra. No. If you were singing a head voice, like a head voice tenor sound. So even though Wagner always said that he greatly disliked the bel canto operas and bel canto composers, what, how that whole time period changed the course of singing, he definitely benefited from that, I think. Yeah. And there you have it. That's how we got the the tenor high C. And that's why many people love tenors as much as they do, myself included. Kyle, so, do you have a favorite tenor singing a high C? I mean, that Juan Diego Flores, Amis Ami, is pretty, it's mm-hmm. just always, always my default. I love it. Is he your favorite tenor? 
No, my favorite tenor depend really depends on the mm. piece mm -hmm. because tenor there's so many different types of tenors. Mm -hmm. You know, I probably wouldn't want to hear Juan Diego Flores sing. I don't know, like Otello. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be the same. I don't sure. think he ever would. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And singer. That's the thing. Also, is that singers know themselves, and that you know know what they can and can not do well. The really, mm -hmm. really good ones do. Mm -hmm. They're very strategic about what roles they take on and when, and what the voice is best suited for. Because if you're not, as Kyle will say, you will ruin the voice. Like mm -hmm. you will damage it by trying to do things that it's not ready to do or not capable of doing. Mm -hmm. I have to say that one of my favorite arias that really shows off the, that chested high tenor forceful sound is uh, Di Quella Pira from Il Trovatore. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. That's a good one. Let's listen to it a little. Well, why don't we can listen to that on our way out. Okay. Fine. Unless you have other, I mean, I'll, t I'll talk about tenors all day if you want mm. to. Oh, geez. We can go on and on. <laughs> we can we can talk about the tenor toes. You guys know about the tenor toes? What is what that? Toes? You know, when you watch a tenor, maybe a, a, patenor, a, a tenor that's smaller in figure. Oh, and they and, like go up on their tiptoes when they're hitting a high note? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that is the tenor toes. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to call out any names, mm. but I'm thinking about it, and <laughs> okay. I, I, I have seen Mr. Lawrence Brownlee do some tenor toes. <laughs> I don't, I don't begrudge anybody of doing it. It's, you know, it's generally in, during some very epic singing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, we as singers will do. I talk about it like I'm a professional opera singer, which I'm not. <laughs> we as singers will utilize a lot of different physical metaphors in order to help us produce the sound that we want, right? Because oh, definitely. Singing is this mysterious thing mm -hmm. sometimes. You are trying to get a certain result, getting your voice to do something or training muscles to work in a certain way. And so sometimes like physical movements help you move the voice in a particular way that yeah. then might become ingrained as a as a bit of a habit like the tenor toes we could do like a web series on that or a, <laughs> a youtube video like when singers hold like a an inflatable ball in between their legs and it dramatically changes the sound of their voice mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i love it my teacher always made us like sing with one like standing on one leg Mm -hmm. either that or like bend over at the waist and it's all it's really just ways of getting the muscles to engage in different ways that mm -hmm. force your breathing to change yeah but. okay well however you're listening to this podcast we're going to need you to uh stand up and <laughs> bend at the knees maybe at the waist as we play out and we listen to some il trovatore mm -hmm. uh following that make sure you go into your podcast listening app or website or whatever leave a good review uh then think about going to patreon.com slash after dark supporting the podcast there and then we'll see you next week another fun episode i'm kyle i'm naomi and i'm elspeth and we'll see you next time thanks for listening bye bye bye
Thank you.